Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. It's getting to the end of the year now, and this episode will be a nice, hopefully short and punchy review of 2023 and what we've seen so far. How are you doing today, my little elf, Jack? <laughs> yeah, feeling very merry. Thanks. I'm, I'm your little helper today. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, we've, we've got our Christmas jumpers on. It's that time of year. I think it's good to uh, to look back on on the year we've had in 2023, right? There's been a lot going on, lots of uh, lots of big events, but also kind of general themes, right? That we've we've kind of uh, teased out, I think, in today's episode. So hopefully, we'll see what the bigger picture is for, for Web3, and then next week we'll we'll maybe do some crystal ball gazing and see what we think is coming <laughs> next year. Yeah, I think the the crystal ball stuff will be quite interesting, just so we can. Obviously, this is our first year. We've only been around for seven months at this stage. But as we kind of get this continuation, we can see how close our predictions are to the reviews at the end of the year. Um, we're in a golden era right now where we can't be held accountable for any of our predictions. Um, but yeah, should we kick it off then? This has been a super spicy year. And my number one for the year, I think it's a, a term that's on a lot of people's tongues right now, is AI. Obviously, at the start of the year, well, it was actually the end of 2022, we saw ChatGPT come about, right? And AI has been around for a long time. Like a lot of people have been working in the space. But as we've talked about in great detail now, ChatGPT was the killer application of AI for a lot of people. It made AI understandable. It made it uh, kind of real and practical and tangible for people to just jump on onto the interface, throw some queries at it and see the power of AI. And I think this was one of the most impactful things for Web3 in my mind. Yeah, exactly. And I, it's probably worth, you know, mentioning our distinction, the way we see Web3, right, is that I think we see AI as a big a part of the larger Web3 space, right? It's it's a it's a technology that sits next to and in, in, con, in conjunction with all the other kind of blockchain, smart contract tokenization aspects of Web3. And traditionally, especially before this year, I think they were seen as very separate industries. But, you know, uh, what, what we've seen with the rise of ChatGPT is, yeah, it's had its killer app moment. Everyone's now taking it seriously. People have seen, okay, this is there is real kind of consumer utility to be had with AI and that, and that explosion of ChatGPT. And actually, we've seen that take a lot of a lot of focus and attention away from the rest of Web three, right? Let's let's call it the rest of Web three, because some people would mm. say, you know, everyone's moved on from Web three to AI now. But actually, I think it's just the focus has shifted a lot, right? Yeah, I mean. Like you say, we saw, I think it was, I think ChatGPT went live in November 2022. And by February 2023, they had 100 million active users. You know, this year, at the end of this year, 33% of companies are starting to use AI in their everyday business practices. Like this is big. And yeah, I completely agree. We kind of see it under the general umbrella term of Web3. But it, it probably is has been to the detriment of, say, some of the more traditional Web3 topics like blockchain and digital identity and all these kind of things. Um, I think, yeah, one thing that I mean, I know that you agree with as well is that the use of AI is not to the detriment of these topics, though. I think as we see more and more people using AI, as you see some of the issues that are starting to come about about you know, ChatGPT being trained by scraping the Internet, where does data belong? Where does data sovereignty lie? All this kind of stuff. 
I think it's actually going to be an absolute game changer and opportunity for blockchain, for digital identity, you know, for zero knowledge proofs. I think AI is going to bring people into you know, the general Web3 space. They can understand the benefits, but there's going to be a lot of issues that come about because of that. And I think that's going to take everyone on the journey to a lot of the topics already talked about where data sovereignty is probably at the core of that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's completely put into context this whole conversation around you know, data security and privacy, because now there's a there's a there's a real thing out there with ChatGPT and all its competitors. You know, we've seen so many competitors come out this year from other companies. You've got Grok now from Twitter. You've got Bard from Google. <laughs> They're springing up every day, right? But it's it's really stoked this conversation around. Okay, well, what's our sovereignty over data in this context? Because you know, ChatGPT effectively being you know trained on the internet data without anyone's consent, really. Mm. Um, and now, okay, cool, we're using it for something, it's great. But our question is now, how do we use this in an ethical way going forward? How do we make sure the data sets used to train them are managed, uh, you know, with security and privacy in mind? So I think it's, if anything, you know, in the short term and, in the, and, and at the start of the year, definitely, it felt like, okay, all the VC money is moving away from the traditional other kind of areas of Web3. Mm. Uh, all the heads have been turned now to AI. But actually, I think it's shifting back and people are starting to realize AI and blockchain, specifically and other Web3 technologies, they're kind of a match made in heaven. They will have to work in concert going forward, basically. Right? Yeah. And during our data ownership um, episode where we talked about this in detail, we said that most people don't probably care about data ownership in like the full sense of the term. But I think because of AI, that conversation is happening more and more readily. And it's also happening from a regulatory standpoint as well. Like the EU AI Act actually came out and they talked about, you know, what are the limits? What are companies allowed to do? They said, you know, you're not allowed to do uh, internet scraping for certain very personal types of data, like pictures of yourselves, emotional things related to uh, healthcare and all this kind of stuff. And they also said systems for AI, which you know, is typically considered the black box. I have no idea how ChatGPT trains their models, that kind of issue. Well, there has to be more transparent. And I think these are a lot of opportunities for, you know, blockchain. We talked about provenance, you know, next year and the year after, I think we're going to really see a boom of all these deep fakes. And I think it's going to cause an absolute hell for the upcoming presidential election. And I think that's going to be paramount. There's going to need to be provenance. There's going to need to be public provability of, you know, of the source of some of these materials. And I think it's a real opportunity for blockchain and the Web3 topics. So, yeah, it's a huge one. AI is an absolute number one for me. Yeah, I think it definitely deserves to be first on this list, right? Because it's if we recorded this episode this time last year, it would have also been the only thing anyone was talking about. <laughs> and it's proven to be, you know, the hype was real. Not, the pace of change hasn't stopped. It's accelerated. So, yeah, I think it is deservedly kind of first on our list. Um, and again, I don't think the, the list apart from this is necessarily in order, but um, but that one probably probably is. <laughs> So I think the second theme or the big kind of suite of events we've seen this year was actually not so much in the Web3 space, but it's something highly related to it, right? So we saw this this kind of wave of, of banking collapses in traditional finance. So, you know, I think the number was five banks in the end actually collapsed. So the highest number we've seen since 2017, right? And everyone's now thinking, you know, this is slightly mirroring the 2008 financial crash. You've got interest rates on the rise, all this stuff, right? So mm. people are saying history is repeating in the traditional finance world. And that's obviously spurring a conversation again on the motivation and need for uh, distributed cash systems, money that is separated from state, right? So I think that is also something that's that's helped to bring Web3 back into the conversation from where it was maybe this time last year when everyone was saying, okay, well, Web3 is dying, AI is the, the main thing. 
<laughs> yeah, I think it was really interesting to see this earlier on in the year where there was these, it weren't just small banks, like it was Silicon Valley Bank was the biggest, right? That's a very well-known bank in mm. America. Assets of like 200 billion or something like that, quite established, 40 years old, all this kind of stuff. Um, and for them to collapse because of a bank run. And I think one of the things that we have to mention here, obviously the relation to Web3, is they were, um, I guess, one of the more friendly crypto banks, right? They actually had their um, kind of involvement in a lot of crypto projects. They were, they were investing in a lot of crypto projects directly or, or indirectly. And initially, when this bank run happened that we've talked about in detail previously, uh, a lot of people were saying it's because they were exposed to crypto assets. And that was the reason. It's all crypto's fault. It's not nothing wrong with traditional financial systems. And that was what I, I understood. And we saw, you know, a dip in the stock market, obviously, but a larger dip in crypto assets because of this. And then very quickly, crypto recovered and a lot of people were using them as safe havens because it turned out that actually it, it wasn't really because of their exposure to crypto specifically. It's because there wasn't there wasn't good regulation. There wasn't good transparency. It was actually issues with, you know, traditional financial systems. And then actually crypto became the safe haven post that. And it was really interesting, this kind of set the tone the early narrative was very anti-crypto and then actually was a proof that you know traditional finance sometimes can make mistakes in the same way that decentralized finance it can as well yeah and i think this is almost kind of adding more fuel to the fire of what we saw throughout covid right and a couple of years leading up to now is all the money printing that's going on the destabilization of various different uh, fiat currencies in the world that you know do do provide more evidence and, and backing for okay justification we need uh, proper services in web3 we need functioning scalable blockchains that can handle user demand for whole countries and things that they can they can have safe havens for their assets but you know at the same time with this traditional banking kind of collapse in various places we saw that element of contagion right the same as you say mm -hmm. the same contagion we saw in d5 predicts with the collapse of terra luna last year uh, and also FTX, you know, so some of the contagion with all the other companies associated with that also impacted Web3 this year with, with the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, right? As you said, it was, they were the ones who were providing a lot of banking services to these companies who they couldn't get it elsewhere. And then they had this, you know, in particular, the one of the indirect effects was you saw with USDC, right? So they held lots mm. of those reserves for, for the stablecoin USDC issuer circle, held lots of their reserves with SVB. And there was a temporary depegging from the US dollar, right? So this wasn't like with Luna or, or you could have with other uh, algorithmic stable coins where there was a depegging because of the Web3 elements. It was actually a depegging because of mm -hmm. uh, trauma and problems happening in, in the traditional finance world. But, you know, what's your take on it overall? Because for me, I think, um, although significant, this, this doesn't really change too much for me, I think there's enough momentum behind the web three. Now there's enough momentum in the narratives. We know mm. there's a need for, for these, these alternative asset types. Right. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it, it's significant to show that the same problems that were there in 2008, right. When, when Bitcoin mm. was born are still there today. So we haven't solved them the traditional way. So I think it, it does show us that there is a, there's still a need, let's say yeah. for, 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 for traditional money. Uh, exactly. Money. We talked about it in the FTX and Binance. And I think the thing was that, all systems are fallible to humans, right? And a lot of this is human, a human problem at the end of the day. And I think, yeah, one of the one of the actual kind of narratives that I saw coming out of this stuff was around people being anti-fiat. The idea of being able to hold, you know, fractional reserves is evil, and this is what happens when you actually have that system. And I think, yeah, you're right. Like it's, um, I don't think it was necessarily anti-Web three and anti-cryptocurrency. It just showed there's vulnerabilities and everything. And the more transparent one can be, the better. And maybe that does lend itself slightly to Web three. And that would be yeah, my take on it. 
and maybe just to kind of complement that as well, right? It does show that there is still this need for Web3 and Web2 to play ball with one another for traditional finance mm. and DeFi to play ball, right? Because they are interconnected and in an ideal end state, you will have this big mixing and crossover between traditional finance and, and Web3 based finance. So I think it shows that there, there's need for more robust systems to actually handle that, I think, going forward. Definitely. And like we always say, there's always a need for regulatory oversight, be in Web2, in Web3 like that is essential and that kind of leads me to the next one which is around web3 growing pains and really the institutional regulation and fines that have come in in the space we've had an entire episode i think last week on this and there's a few different areas that we could talk about on this one the early one was actually probably all negative right it was around the web3 and crypto layoffs like early 2023 there was in q1 there was like 20 percent layoffs across the board for huge huge companies like coinbase crypto.com consensus bitcoin swiss chain analysis they were laying off one-fifth of their workforce across the board and there was a couple of reasons to this one of it was partly because there was a bear market you know less money coming in people you know being a bit more reluctant to invest all this kind of stuff less enthusiasm less optimism so people had to cut especially considering there'd been a lot of growth in the previous year so everyone was expecting that that, that would continue and they need to prepare for that and have, have the the kind of the staff base to do that so that was bad <laughs> across the board um yeah. the other thing was to do with ai like we said i mean a lot of the hype that was going into crypto blockchain decentralization all this kind of stuff was then shifting to ai and you saw like a lot of these companies that were de-investing from web3 or more traditional web3 topics let's say like blockchain and crypto um, were then pushing into AI and that like got so much attention, right? I think one of the, the mad things that I saw was IBM, this huge, huge company said that any, we're going to freeze hiring, any jobs that are related or could even potentially be related to AI, we're going to freeze until we understand if AI can actually do those jobs. And that was mm. 25,000 jobs that I was related to. Like it just blew my mind how quickly companies were jumping on the fact that AI could do you know, a lot of jobs probably more efficient and more cheaply than people. And they woke up to that fact very quickly. It, felt, it feels like a bit of a perfect storm, right? What we had, especially earlier in the year, is that coming out of 2022, not only had you had this prolonged bear market entering its second or third year, I lose count at mm -hmm. this point, and all the fallout from FTX and everything that happened, all the contagion with the stable coins, um, all the stuff that happened in 2022 that was pretty cataclysmic for Web3. And then all of a sudden comes along this new poster boy for tech in AI, right? So you have these two things, you know, hand over the baton to, for all the VCs and all the money. It's going to obviously go straight to, to the AI project. So yeah, we saw all these layoffs. That was, that was particularly kind of harrowing at the start of the year, I think. I think there is a bit of a recovery now, but it was quite, quite um, stark, the, the change in narrative across the year. And then, yeah. you know, going later into the year, we have, I guess all, a lot of those problems in Web3 come into maturity with all the legal and regulatory action, right? Action, right? That we, as we spoke about in the last episode, the the SEC rulings about whether or not think things like Bitcoin and Ethereum are securities, commodities, exchange tokens. All these things have been kind of slowly mm. moving towards resolution, I think, even though we don't have full clarity. Some of the interactions the SEC have had with Coinbase and, and, and with XRP and things like that have answered some of those questions and has angered a lot of people in some cases, right? I think Cardano was one of the examples of this happening with, with the securities mm. regulations. So that's been a big theme this year of actual regulatory teeth starting to take, take hold yeah. in the market, which is not helpful for a lot of the the classical web3 companies which are trying to take advantage of the lax environment before not necessarily a bad thing but something yeah. significant yeah it's hard i think like, like you say it's not necessarily a bad thing because as we always said regulation is good 
I think my issue with the whole SEC debacle early on was that it, it wasn't clear for a lot of people. And like this kind of stuff's important, like how assets are taxed and regulated is very important. I remember like seeing Gary Gensler um, in, in court trying to define things and change. It seemed like he changed a lot and it wasn't like the regulation wasn't clear. And now he's come out blaming Web3 companies for not complying and say, okay, well, you're not being compliant. We're going to punish you. And they've, well, they've been there. Like, well, we've been trying to comply, but we haven't had regulatory certainty to actually move with it. And you've kind of, you've been regulating through enforcement after something has happened rather than, you know, creating the standards in advance and then expecting people to match those standards, which is an issue. And I think it's very difficult for Web3 companies. Like Coinbase obviously spent a lot of time working with the SEC to understand how they could comply and they got publicly listed to a great expense to them. I think it was FTX actually had the most interactions with the SEC and look how that went. Like It didn't really end very well for them, right? I mean, that's one of the other big things we've talked in great detail about um, FTX and obviously they're gone now. That was a, a huge issue. Um, we talked about the criminal case and, and that, that concluded in December, but the class action is still ongoing. But like you say, I think a lot of this stuff, including the Binance stuff as well, there's a silver lining there. We say regulation's good. Regulatory certainty is good. It provides users and businesses more trust. And in the end of the day, that leads to more adoption. I think that's really needed. And we're going to see institutional adoption. I hope this is an early, early kind of um, crystal ball. But I think we are going to see a lot of institutional adoption coming forward. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that, with that silver lining. And it's also worth mentioning, you know, these growing pains are probably being most starkly felt, you know, in the Western world, America and the UK in particular, and the EU to an extent, right? Because that's where a lot of the, the it's become a more hostile towards crypto and Web3 in the last couple of years. UK is a very difficult place to, to have a Web3 business. Mm. In the US, you have all this uncertainty. If you're even, you know, as big as Coinbase and you still don't know, then, then that's a worrying sign. But lots of places in the world take a different, you know, blockchain and web3 is global it's distributed in nature as, as we always say mm -hmm. so there are actually many other jurisdictions which are taking different parts and i think that's it kind of speaks to the one of the beautiful things about web3 right is that it, it can move anywhere it can move to where um, the environment is most uh, most appealing for them but yeah i think it's 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 something to keep tabs on next year right let's see how those environments <laughs> change going into to 2024 and you said it really well last time. I think it was one of the episodes. I can't remember which one it was. But you're like, one of the things is around the rapid growth, right? It's actually the change that's happened, the, the kind of the rate of change that's happened. It's the fact that these companies have grown so very quickly out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like FTX was just 200 people and they were managing tens of billions worth of assets. And I think that's some of the growing pains as well is that there's just been so much demand and these companies have been trying to match that and cutting corners to do that. And I think well, this is speculation as well. We're probably going to see that with a lot of the AI stuff that's coming out as well, because these companies are getting so much investment so quickly. And let's see if the regulatory certainty is there and in place to actually make sure they do it safely. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, what if the regulatory hammer comes down on AI next year, right? And then everything moves back mm. to Web3. That's definitely a possibility. <laughs> so I think the fourth thing I wanted to talk about in terms of, you know, what have we seen this year? One of the big events that we've seen, not just a theme, but an event was ethereum moving to proof of stake right this was a huge huge shift for the the second largest blockchain and arguably the most popular in terms of building applications on top right so this was it was a number of years in 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 development it, at some stages it looked like it might not happen but you know it mm -hmm. got over the line in september 2023 so to recap ethereum changed its entire consensus algorithm and this is huge i know some chains may have done this but on a much smaller scale for much smaller blockchains. But Ethereum 
one of the leading blockchains managed to change from proof of work, so expending a lot of energy mm. to produce blocks and maintain the blockchain to proof of stake. So basically it cuts down kind of almost something like 99% of the, the direct electricity consumption and by extension, the emissions associated with running the blockchain overnight, mm. right? That switch just happened. And this kind of plays into this wider theme of the conversation around the environmental impacts of blockchain and Web3, right? This has been quite a hot topic for a number mm. of years and it's become much more under the spotlight in 2023 with this proof of state merge for Ethereum. Yeah, this was going on for a long time, right? They called it the merge and it was kind of like looming over people for a long time. And I think one of the issues was that, you know, proof of work, even though it does have uh, a big energy consumption and that's the cost, right? There, it had been battle tested. It had been, you know, being used in Bitcoin since 2008. No real hacks, no real flaws. People trusted in that. Whereas proof of stake, completely untested in a way. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see if there are any issues that come about. I think a good friend of mine explained it to me quite recently is that, you know, we have trusted systems right now. We trust an authority and they'll stamp of approval over things. And that's quite a centralized traditional system. The idea of proof of work was that you trust in the hash, you trust in the amount of energy being used in the network. And that's what you trust. And you're shifting the trust paradigm. And proof of stake then goes in a different direction. You're now trusting stake. You're now trusting someone's assets. And that's, you know, moving away from the energy and there's some downsides to that like obviously we have the upsides that it's going to save energy and all this kind of stuff compared to proof of work but some of the downsides are it can be self-perpetuating to people with assets and you know there's no incentive for other people to get involved it's quite difficult for other people to get involved and will it create these kind of I don't know, dragons sitting on top of a pile of gold at the end of the day and it's difficult to know what will happen with that yeah um, i think it'll warrant a full episode to explore this right because it's such a super interesting topic that the differences and, and arguments for and against proof of work and proof of stake but that's the big one, right, is that is the fact mm. that there is no real energy consumption required for proof of stake. And you say it's not battle tested, but some people would say, well, it's been battle tested in the traditional finance world for many, many years. Right. It kind of mirrors <laughs> what we have there, which is an interesting take. But on this kind of environmental question, you've also seen, I think, bandwagoning on this and Ethereum ex effectively uh, accepting for one reason or another to go down this path. Did you see the attack by Greenpeace on Bitcoin this year? The kind of uh, jumping on this proof of stake hive. Were you aware of this, Alec? No, not not no. What is it? So I can't. It happened sometime kind of early earlier this year. But Greenpeace basically started coming out publicly and saying Bitcoin needs to change its code base to stop using so much energy, right? Because it was saying, mm. you know, in twenty twenty two, sixty two percent of the energy maintaining bitcoin was not from renewable resources i think i think that was the figure that they quoted so mm. they actually came out and they they pinpointed all of the uh, big financial services players right blackrock fidelity jp morgan all these big players we talk about on mm. the institutional adoption side and they said you guys are all helping to further bitcoin you're, you're promoting its use in the future but we need you to acknowledge the impact of Bitcoin mining. We need you to acknowledge that it, it's energy intensive, that lots of the mm -hmm. energy currently is coming from non-renewable sources. And they basically came out and said, you need to go and ch change the code, which I think <laughs> is a, a thinly veiled you know, expression of you need to adopt proof of stake, right? Which is really interesting. You have a massive player like that coming in now. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Like I've written, um, what's his name? Bill Gates' book on environmental impact and how to live a sustainable future. And his... His take is, you know, we can't stop development. We can't say we're no longer going to use energy to improve the quality of living because, I mean, there's a few reasons. One, as we develop, obviously, the world, the living standards improve. There's less economically developed countries around the world that, you know, have to develop and have to consume more energy. It's just, 
ensuring that the amount of energy we use for certain tasks is worth the utility that's created. And I kind of get it right now. Bitcoin, the way it's being used, it's just a store of value. All of that energy is being used for, you know, just holding gold effectively. And it's kind of moved away from the utility that would have been, you know, the electronic cash system that it was set up to be. And I think, yeah, it is, it's a valid point. A lot, if this energy is being used just to store value, then, you know, what's the point? But if it's being used for real utility, like an electronic cash system, like all the many applications that can be built on blockchain that we've talked about that have real value, then that's something that we actually need to discuss. It can't just be okay, any energy is any energy usage is always bad. Like I think that's the wrong stance, but it's always good to you know think about the environment and consider sustainability in the conversation. And I think one of the interesting things is like you see like by market cap, which as we've talked about previously, market caps is a very weird way to evaluate cryptocurrencies. Um, I think only maybe of the top thirty or twenty, three of them use proof of work now. I think it's BTC, Litecoin. And then Doge, that just shows the quality. The rest are all using proof of stake or proof of uh, authority and all these new consensus algorithms that are are coming out and a bit untested. Yeah, Yeah, it's not making the most compelling argument for using proof of work when it's just those kind of chains at the minute, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, But on the green piece, you know, coming in and trying to go to these big companies and saying, you know, force Bitcoin to actually start to consider more environmentally friendly consensus mechanism. The number five that I want to talk about, and we've talked about this in great detail and already mentioned it in this episode, is the institutional interest that is picking back up in the Web3 space. Obviously, everyone should know now about the BlackRock ETF. This is a huge boost to, to Web3 and crypto generally. I think one of the, the news articles that we talked about previously was around the Coindesk false flag, where they said it had been approved. And this ETF, you know, it instantly led to a 10% rise in the in the kind of the market cap and price of BTC. And there's lots of other spot ETFs that are coming off the back of this right now. They have that uncertainty. One of the things that I've been seeing all over social media is like, actual the advertisements talking about satoshi and bitcoin and the big players now trying to already assume that their etfs are going to go through trying to get people to use their etfs and it's really funny seeing like traditional kind of uh, banks and traditional kind of institutions come in and try and advertise crypto because they do it really well and it's actually got me trying i'm thinking about investing in it as well yeah and i think i think that's like there's, there seems to be a swathe of maturity now coming for all the actors who still remain in Web3 after the, the kind of shakeout of the last year or so, is that a lot of them are, are have seemed to have grown up a bit and are now appealing to the traditional finance much more than the you're just your crypto consumers. I don't know if you saw the Coinbase advert that came out recently. Really, really amazing, compelling. Oh, you know, it's it, it's such such a uh, kind of heartstrings pull about the value proposition me. of yeah, it's great. Um, is the new it's the new uh. John Lewis Christmas ad, right? Was, yeah, well, was the really, point really was good. like, you can work your ass off and still not be yeah. able to compete in the world and still not be able to buy a house. But, you know, being able to allow anyone to invest in these solutions is is good and accessibility is important. And yeah, it really tugged on the, the heartstrings. It made me want to, well, I do use Coinbase now after that, but it was a good one. Yeah, very effective. So that, you know, they are targeting these proper institutional adopters. We've talked at length about the ETF and people are talking about it now like, like it's a foregone conclusion, right? People are predicting the day exactly on which it will be approved in uh, in January, which is interesting. But I think it's it's fair to assume that there is more acceptance coming of these digital assets as a new asset class that people want. There's enough demand now, even despite um, what's happened in the last couple of years with all the all the, all the crashes and the FTXs of the world. People still fundamentally are clamoring for these alternative assets and these companies are going to provide those services for people. And 
one of the interesting themes that's come out of this is um, tokenization, right? That was a super hot term and, and topic, you know, mm. for the last number of years, much more popular in say 2019, 2020. And that's when your big banks and, and investment firms are talking about tokenizing assets that that kind of died away over the last few years, but now has seen a real resurgence with a new name. Mm. So now they're calling it real world assets. Right? They're <laughs> saying, how do we <laughs> RWAs? You'll see that term everywhere, right? So it's, it's definitely something that's come out of 2023. And this increased pickup of institutional adoption is um, tokenizing real world assets. As we, as we talked about in the, in the, the TradFi episode, there's a big demand to make very illiquid assets, um, mm. you know, things like company ownership, things like real estate, things like collectibles that are traditionally quite illiquid. The private markets, right? That's the, the big the big area, right? Private markets, which are hard to gain access mm. to. Actually, you can make these assets very liquid now using Web3 tools. So they're calling it RWAs. If you see it in the next year, that's what they're referring to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th th there's clearly people not only accepting Bitcoin and its compatibility, Patriots as like a, an asset class, but also yeah. the technology and tools on top to tokenize things. That was a bit of alliteration, but they're really seeing the opportunity there and advantage of that. Yeah. And I want to give a couple of shout outs to people on this one. Obviously, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, he was one of the uh, the biggest crypto haters or Bitcoin haters, like what, two, three years ago. And all of a sudden, he's it's like, it's his new thing, right? He's obsessed with it. It's all he ever tweets about. So he's yeah. been converted. Um, I mean, one of the one of the other people I want to shout out is Jamie um, Dimon. He's on. He's the JP Morgan CEO, and he's coming out hard against crypto and BTC specifically right now. And mm -hmm. like he's saying, you know, if if the uh, Congress could and they could take over Bitcoin, he should shut it down. It's just for drug dealers, and they won't comply, and all this kind of stuff. I think he's a bit hypocritical because, you know, JP Morgan's paid 40 billion in fines for AML money laundering and actually not complying with regulations. So I think there's a bit of a hypocrisy there. But also there's another level of hypocrisy where they've increased their crypto and blockchain team from 100 to 300 in 2023. So it's like they're saying one thing, say don't invest in this thing. It's bad. But really, it seems like they're just trying to bring the price down so they can invest and make a quick book on it. And they'll be ready in next by, by next year to start to move into this space quite heavily. Yeah, you can certainly see the uh, the motivation for doing that, right? If you can, if you can, you know, tell people to look one way and then you actually run the other. That is, a, is definitely mm. a reason for that. Um, the sixth and final trend, or maybe not, not a trend in this case, an absence of a trend in <laughs> 2023, I think we have to mention is the metaverse, right? So we've had a few episodes on the metaverse. It was a super hot topic in 2021, less so in 2022. In 2023, it barely gets a mention. Or if it does, it's being spoken about in the context of uh, the failings of, of Facebook or Meta and, and Mark Zuckerberg, right? So just to kind of recap, we had in 2021, the name change, Facebook to Meta. Then from there, you get about $100 billion, I've seen is the figure, spent on R&D, right? And there was this, yeah, there was this... Um, division of, of meta created called reality labs well they reported a loss of around 24 billion across 2021 <laughs> 2022 yeah crazy and uh and that led to you know their own set of layoffs right so about 10 percent of their workforce was laid off in, in late 2022 in, in facebook and yeah 2023 barely gets a mention so now uh, i think in kind of mid this year Mark Zuckerberg quite sheepishly talking about what Facebook are up to. And they're basically saying their single biggest investment now is in AI, generative AI, how they use that, right? Mm -hmm. So they they seem to have there seemed to have been a slow, quiet death of the metaverse as a concept, mm -hmm. as as far as Facebook was pushing it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I remember those early advertisements of like Mark Zuckerberg talking to his friends in the conference room, <laughs> absolutely cringing. But it was kind of, it was quite promising to see this kind of stuff, right? Like I had always talked about the metaverse in, in great detail. And I'd always thought there was a great value proposition of the metaverse. Like we talked about, you know, the digital age is all about convenience, but this convenience of being able to talk on a screen or on a phone across the world comes to the detriment of, you know, the emotional, the physical world. And the metaverse, one of the goals of that is to bring the emotional world and the empathetic world into the convenience of the digital world and combine those things. I think there's a lot of utility, a lot of value that can be had from that outside of, you know, some of the hype stuff around being able to sit in a conference room and like, talk to your friends with your avatars and all this kind of stuff. I think the metaverse is going to be a thing. I do believe in it. I think that right now is probably slightly too soon for companies to be putting $100 billion of R&D into that. I don't know if the world's necessarily ready. And I think they've seen, okay, actually AI has a lot of value right now and it's probably a much easier sell on the lower hanging fruit of the two. So I think Metaverse, it will come back in like the five to 10 year kind of range. I think the hardware's got to keep up and start to you know pick up the pace and become more accessible. And on that, we obviously saw Apple move quite well into the space a big step for them with the uh, apple vision pro the headset that came out in june um three and a half k so not very accessible very few people they're going to use it but you know it looks incredible i've seen some of the run-throughs and some of the people using it and what everyone's saying is it's going to replace laptops it's going to replace monitors you're going to be able to work from wherever on the go and it's so intuitive I'm really excited for this kind of technology to be more accessible, to be more affordable and to see more people using it. I really want to use it. <laughs> I really want to use it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, I agree with what you're saying, right? I think probably the the outlook I have now is the vision of the metaverse as Mark Zuckerberg was selling it a couple of years ago is dead in the short term, at least. And I agree as the hardware improves over time, we probably will end up getting closer to that again in the future when there's more demand, but, when there are going to be stepping stones to that. And I think what Apple's doing is, is a very shrewd way of getting us on that path again. But, you know, if you see the way they're marketing it and the way everyone was waiting for their entrance, right? They were saying, if anyone's mm-hmm. going to get this right, it'll be Apple. And mm-hmm. you see it's it's clear that they're not using the same terminology of metaverse, of uh, extended reality, mixed reality. I mean, in practice, what they're what the product is doing with the Vision Pro is very much mm-hmm. lots of stuff we talked about with Robert Rice early this year, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they will come, but they're talking about uh, the idea of spatial computing or a spatial operating system, right? And they're very much focused on the use cases and the value that you can get from the technology. They're not talking about the technology first, which makes a lot of sense. And the Apple Vision Pro launch, right? That was the first time I thought, oh, okay, I'm I'm an Apple fanboy. But that was the first time I thought I could (laughs) genuinely see myself on right there. That was the first time I thought I could I could probably buy a thing, right? Because when I when I sh- saw them showcasing uh, extending your laptop virtually, mm-hmm. right, your screens and having more real estate wherever you are, if you're in a coffee shop, I thought, wow, that I could actually see the value in doing that, right? That's the stepping stone version of metaverse. I think that mm-hmm. people can accept. So I think I think it's positive news that the hype around the old version has kind of died down for now, and that we're going to see some potential adoption with Apple. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how that pans out next year. Yeah, I think one more thing on this is I saw that Apple are no longer going to, well, they're saying right now they're putting a pause on all smartwatches, right? 
um, which is obviously going to really screw up my Christmas present to you, Jack. But so that's one thing I thought everyone was saying, okay, it's because they're moving purely into this spatial computing space. But I, I don't know if that's true. They say it's to do with patent infringement or something like this. So it'd be interesting to see if they start to dial back on the wearables or if they're promoting purely on the spatial computing or what. But yeah, it will be interesting. When Apple move into a space, they tend to do it very well, right? And very large. Um, but yeah, on these brands, I think one thing that I would like to say is that this year we've seen, because of all the things we've mentioned, but institutional adoption, um, the bear market, we have seen attending from the crypto hype that you know I hate towards more utility and projects with utility. Mm-hmm. I think the purge that kind of happened early on with the bear market and all this kind of, you know, all the people that are just there for the buzzword moving from Web3 and blockchain to AI focused projects has meant that we do have some really, really strong projects left that are focused on utility and real value for their customers. Like we've seen a lot of big brands start to move into, you know, the NFT space, but not just NFT for the sake of NFT board apes and all this kind of stuff, but NFTs for real utility. We've seen like Reddit, Nike, Starbucks, all starting to utilize, well, real utility NFTs to increase brand awareness, to generate revenue, like, you know, fidgetals, loyalty points, all these things. I think it's going to be really excited that we're moving away from all the BS that we've previously seen in the space and more and more to actual brands deriving real value from this. Yeah, I think a lot of that side of crypto moving to utility is probably going to feature heavily in our predictions episode. So spoiler alert. But, you know, it's it's true. That has been one of the big themes is the shakeout of the bad actors and, and moving away from a lot of the hype. You know, the, the insane interest rates on DeFi actually not being so good or realistic and mm-hmm. saying, OK, where can we get us? You know, same with real world assets. Right. That's where the utility lies for for lots of traditional finance. So, yeah, I think that, that goes kind of definitely in my kind of let's say honorable mentions we had the big six themes from mm-hmm. the year i think a f- couple of other very quickly small events we, we have to mention so Worldcoin was launched this year again mm-hmm. um that came out of beta this year again a project from the man sam altman himself about scanning your iris and getting crypto tokens for that crazy mm-hmm. business um again we'll probably have to cover that in an episode but worth mentioning that that also happened and another honorable mention i wanted to say about is the fact that there's been a bit of a, a renaissance of layer one and scaling on layer one, right? On scaling on mm-hmm. layer one blockchains. We, we'd, we'd seen a lot of demand and hype around layer two for a number of years, but actually there's been a number of new chains like Aptos and Sui coming out to try and really solve scalability at layer one. You've also had Solana, which went through its trials and tribulations over the last few years after saying it was going to be the Ethereum killer, much more scalable mm-hmm. and cheap. And it's found its market again, right? It's grown mm-hmm. and grown. The transaction numbers are going through the roof now. So there has been increased and renewed demand for scalable layer one. So I think that's that's definitely a positive I've taken away from this year. Yeah, that's really exciting. We're going to have to do a whole episode on you know, side chains, layer ones, layer twos, to really go into that and deep dive it and see how they continue to grow over over the coming year. I think one last mention, probably the biggest thing in Web3 that happened in 2023 was that Untangling Web3 was founded <laughs> six, seven months ago now. Um, yeah been incredible we've covered i think 30 episodes up until this point uh, so that's 30 weeks of constant content i feel like i have learned an awful lot i feel like i hope that some of the listeners not just my mom have learned something as well but it has been an incredible seven months yeah likewise i uh, i feel like we've fulfilled the goal at least of us learning something this year so right whether or not we've still got listeners i think it's been a really good <laughs> fun ride right so far for both of us we've learned so much and not just about podcasting but about web3 in general so uh, yeah the biggest event to happen in 2023 to finish <laughs> is obviously untangling web3 launching and there'll be much more where all this came from in 2024 so stick around keep listening 
But with that, from Alec and I, it's happy Christmas from us at Entangling Web3 and join us next time in the new year to entangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.